Hello, and welcome to Cherry Beckert's podcast series, the second for private equity, where we discuss challenges and opportunities in the ever-changing investment environment with respect to the marine and boating industry. Today, we'll be joined by David G., who is executive editor of the Boating Industry Magazine. For more than 75 years, all those serious about the business of boating have turned to Boating Industry Magazine, which is one of the most authoritative voices of the marine market for strategic analysis, in-depth coverage, and proprietary research of the day's most critical issues. Today, in the second part, we will be dealing with what goes into actually selling and buying a marine manufacturer. And, and so, David, would you be kind enough to kind of talk to us, because you have knowledge of, obviously, a number of the transactions that occurred, but, but talk to us about the seller struggle and, and what happens when owners are selling their business and some of the things that they wrestle with. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me, Ron. And, and uh, the seller struggle is uh, kind of defined as, as an owner who's wrestling with uh, selling their business uh, choosing between maybe somebody who's a highest bidder, uh, who values their, their business the highest numerically, uh, but, you know, maybe looking to flip it or uh, do something else with it in the short term or selling their business to someone who, who you know absolutely cares for the brand, for the employees and the legacy. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a backdrop there, uh, over a thousand uh, boat builders, uh, original equipment manufacturers in the U.S., uh, highly fragmented industry. Many of those are, are small companies. And uh, many of them actually still today are, are being run and wholly owned by their founders. So there, there's a, a bit of a, of a mom and pop, uh, uh, you know, uh, situation going. And, and so uh, as these companies come up for sale, uh, you know, they're, they're th these Buyers often fall into uh, into a couple of different categories. Now, uh, Harvard Business Review says, you know, seven, unfortunately, seventy to ninety percent of, of mergers and acquisitions fail. So that's that's you know not anything to do with specifically the recreational boating industry. That's just uh, you know every business vertical and sector uh, nationwide. So so that's that's kind of tough. Uh, but uh, as far as recreational boating industry is concerned, uh, oftentimes uh, those acquisitions are, are being made on the short-term side. A company thinks that that they can, you know, uh, uh, ramp up R&D or engineering or manufacturing, or, or you know, that, that there's something in those balance sheets that that they can uh, find some value. So, uh, you know, maybe they overpay a little bit. So now they've got to take some steps to justify their investment. Uh, they have a clear at, uh, exit strategy that the day that they buy the new company, high financial targets they have to meet in a short time frame. And so that's a, a very different buyer, as I said, than one who who has done a lot of due diligence due diligence, not only on the financial side, but on the soft side, the cultural side. You have a buyer who value the brand, who value the employees, who value the seller's legacy. They may not even have an exit strategy. They just say, hey, we we love this brand. We love the people who, who build the boats and we want to invest uh, in the brand, weather the business cycle, uh, you know, meet those inevitable challenges and, uh, you know, away we go. Uh, 
you know, as an employee of, of a of a company that's being acquired, of, of course, you want somebody buying who uh, who cares about it, and and everybody says that they will care about it. Uh, but again, uh, you know, we often don't know what's going to happen until until uh, a challenge occurs, until economic downturn happens. Uh, everybody, of course, wants uh, that buyer to be the one who not only pays the the highest multiple uh the highest dollar figure but also cares for the company the most and uh you know those those two things often don't align so it's uh uh an interesting thing when when an owner who's who's invested their life building the business of course they don't want to see their baby fail after selling regardless of of how much money they collect and it could be a, a gut-wrenching process so, David, in regards to your comment around the Harvard Business Review and uh, the likelihood mm -hmm. of a transaction not coming to fruition, um, based on what you see in the consolidation and, and ultimate contraction uh, within the industry, how often and are you seeing what is referred to as sell-side due diligence occurring so as to really, in recognizing it's a privately held, closely held business, mm -hmm. that prior to even considering selling they're really doing sell side due diligence well you know uh a lot of uh, of course there there have to be uh you know some some rigor involved in the process but as i said it's it's uh it's a the the recreational boat business is is a highly fragmented one uh dominated by by founder based uh owners and and operators and oftentimes you know this process starts in a very organic way you know uh somebody that you know a ceo of a publicly traded boat building company is walking the docks at a, at a boat show or walking the floor at a trade show and somebody says hey uh interested in a in a you know making an acquisition of course we always are blah 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 uh i know somebody you know, do you know so-and-so runs such-and-such? Oh, I know of them, of course. I, I don't know them personally. Well, they might be looking to, to, to sell. So maybe there's some, you know, organic uh, conversations that, that, again, start at, at, at the dock of Fort Lauderdale or Miami Boat Show or, or, uh, or a trade show. And, and then, of course, you know, uh, at some point, financials have to be shared and, and uh uh, you know, likely the CEO of the uh, potential acquiring company flies to the the factory and interviews the employees and, you know, tries to get a, a real complete picture. Uh, you know, a, a founder-based business doesn't have the the financial uh, rigor, obviously, of, of a public company. Uh, they may not have to have audited financials. Uh, they likely have smaller financial teams. And if they're going to be entering into the public realm, of course, that brings an additional set of requirements. They have to be mindful of that. And uh, that's an additional investment that a publicly held company may have to make when they purchase one of these private companies, not only looking at, at the financials and and. Uh, doing the research and the due diligence and seeing if it makes sense financially, but they have to be, you know, mindful of the acquisition's ability to do accurate, fast, timely financial closings every month because 
as a public company, that's what you have to do. So, uh, so it's an interesting process when, you know, particularly when, when the acquiring company is likely a publicly held, publicly traded company or, or it could be private equity in some cases. And, uh, with, with a lot of financial rigor, uh, purchasing, uh, a founder based business <laughs> that may or may not have, have much financial rigor at all, even if they're really good at building boats. So, David, um, in our first series, we talked about a number of the transactions that, that occurred, mm-hmm. you know, Malibu buying Pursuit and Cobalt and Mastercraft mm-hmm. buys Crest Marine and Nautica Star. In the current wave of m activity, is it your assessment that these buyers could potentially be overpaying? You know, I, uh, I'm certainly not a financial expert and, and I don't follow the the earnings reports and in, in conference call you know I, I sit in on conference calls but a lot of what they're they're talking about uh you know uh, i don't really completely understand i uh i did write a, a recent article i think you saw last fall about about the m a wave and and interviewed a, a directory of uh, a director of equity research at a, a company actually in Atlanta, who specializes in the the recreational and leisure sector, and and he was kind of puzzled. Uh, so I, you know, kind of defer to the experts in that case, but uh, he he was kind of puzzled. He wasn't. He thought that the, the boat building companies buying other boat building companies made sense. Uh, he was a little uh, less sure about. Uh, Winnebago buying Chris Craft and Polaris, a snowmobile and power sports manufacturer, buying a, a boat uh, a, a boat holdings company with four brands. Uh, he said, you know, I think in that case, as far as Polaris was concerned, he said I, I, a lot of investors were scratching their heads and wondering why they they paid eight hundred and five million dollars uh, in an all cash transaction. Uh, they had previously, Scott Wine, their CEO, had pr- stated previously they had no interest in the marine market, and then they went out and, and made an $805 million all-cash uh, all acquisition. That did catch a lot of people off guard. Uh, it's pretty compelling. He said that that they might uh, have overpaid. He said maybe they have four or five years of growth ahead, uh, some opportunities to to move margins higher. Uh, and he said, if that happens, uh, the economy stays good, then their evaluation wasn't so steep. But he said, if, if uh, you know, the economy softens, the, the uh, discretionary boat purchases begin to, to slow down, and you look back at, at what they paid, then, uh, you know, he said it, it, it looks pretty lofty. So, so in, in, in most of these cases, you know, it just hasn't been enough enough cycles, enough quarters uh, uh, to really know, but uh, certainly there uh, there have been a couple of deals where people are, are wondering if, if uh, the, the acquirer did not in fact overpay. Well, to your comment, you know, when we talk about these deals in terms of metrics and spreadsheets and are we mm-hmm. overvaluing a company, I think one of the things you commented, which is, is very relevant, is that the marine industry, the boating industry, is very rich with tradition in many manufacturers being owned and operated by families. 
um, sometimes multiple generations. So when you think about that, what, what are some of the, what I would refer to as the softer side of the deals and how you place a value on someone's or generational life work? And, and how does that generation effort continue in, in these transactions? Um, so my, my question is, is really is, you know, what do you see as the challenges and opportunities that come along with, with acquiring companies with such family heritage, generational heritage, what's that softer side look like? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. And it is really kind of at the the heart of a lot of these deals. Of course they're they're financially driven and, and the financials and and the metrics have to make sense. But uh you're really you know you're really talking about folding a, a new company uh you know, into uh, a brand and, and portfolio. Uh, everybody, all the CEOs of these acquiring companies, they all talk about the soft side of the deal and that there's a cultural fit and they have the same passion we do. We're committed to this labor force and the community where we've always built these boats and and on and on and on. And, and, and I'm not discounting that, uh, but uh, I think they also kind of, have to say that, uh, don't they? In a way, and and uh, you really have to wait a couple of years uh, to see who's really sincere about that. Uh, if in fact maybe they just bought the the company uh, with a clear exit strategy in mind, not a long term strategy, looking to uh, you know bolster R and D, engineering, marketing, uh, you know, uh, quality control, do something uh, that they saw an opportunity to do. And then, and then I wouldn't say flip it. Nobody's really in the flipping business in the recreation building industry, but they certainly uh, could have a, an exit strategy. And, and others who simply say, you know what, uh, we've admired this boat uh, and and or this boat building company from afar, and uh, you know we we truly care about the the employees. We care about the culture, uh, and you know we're going to make a fair offer. And we will give you our commitment that we will honor the legacy of what you built with your brand and your employees and your community. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that I would like to think I'm not a cynical person by nature. And, and I don't think that uh, these, the CEOs of these acquiring companies are, are, are cynical. I, I think they're pretty honest, truthful, authentic guys. But, uh, you know, things change and, and maybe they even in some cases they they don't have an exit strategy. They have, you know, long-term strategy for growth, and then, and then, uh, you know, uh, economies can change, consumer confidence can change, uh, a lot of, mar you know, a lot of external market forces out of their control can change, and uh, that could change, you know, <laughs> whether or not they hang on to the company. But, uh, but it is, it is, a, it's a profound question. Uh, you know, how do you? you know, uh, from one state uh, making one kind of boat, uh, you know, maintain from afar uh, the culture and, uh, you know, the, the, the leadership and the product quality with, you know, a different company in another state when the founder and the leader of that company uh, likely has departed the scene. So it's a, a profound question and, and one that uh, uh, really comes to bear in, in most of these deals. 
Well, David, on behalf of Cherry Beckert, we want to thank you for your time today and your and your comments in this uh, second part of a three-part series, um, and in the discussion about you know actually selling and buying uh, a marine manufacturer, uh, what's happening in the in the boating and marine industry. So, on behalf of Cherry Beckert, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ron.